The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the conclusion of this great chapter in which Moses, talking to the sons of Israel who are about to cross over to inherit the land, really is penetrating in his imperatives. He's penetrating in his counsel. This is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, the great Shema. You will love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind. It's the the great definition of God's name and his identity. It's the great passage on discipleship, teaching your children and your sons in in verse 7. So much in this passage. We could almost go phrase by phrase and spend months and months here. But this last section really flows together because it has a central theme that's right in the middle of it. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 14. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Mesa. You should diligently keep the commandments, literally all commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies, his statutes which he commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Here's our phrase. That it may be well with you and that you may go in, possess the land, which are the good land which the Lord swore to give your fathers by driving out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come saying, what do the testimonies, the statutes, And the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you. Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. And the Lord brought us up from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt. Pharaoh, all his household. He brought us up from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our father. So... The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. There we are again, for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God just as he commanded us. How do you live a a well-lived life? How how do you do well? How how can you be happy? How can you live a life where you put your head on your pillow at night and say, that was worth living today? How do you define your happiness? Ultimately, every decision you make is really all about what it means to make you happy, isn't it? Think of the, the dozens of decisions that you can recall today. Almost all of them were oriented to bring you a better result in that moment than would have otherwise been made had you made another decision. 
We make tiny decisions and big decisions, massive decisions and what seem to be inconsequential decisions based on what makes us happy in the moment and what makes us happy long term. The Bible calls that living well, living in a way that, that you're pleased with being alive, that you're, you're pleased with your life. But the Bible's also very clear that being pleased with your life is not attached to what's happening to you, but rather what you're doing to respond to what's happening. Question for every believer is this. Will God's glory, will obeying God bring you happiness? Now, before you say, well, of course it will, do you believe that? Do you believe that obeying God's expansive, extensive commandments in the Scripture honoring his massive commandments in the scripture, will that make you happy? You see, really, if you disbelieve that, that's why we sin. John Piper says our uh, our sin is what we do when our heart is not satisfied with God. So every time we sin, we're basically saying, my life won't go well, I won't be happy unless I do this, unless I think this. Back to the heart of verse 18. Do what's right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. Are you ready to make decisions that bring that to fruition? Now, here's the hard part. All of us would say, well, yes, we're certainly ready to do that. And yet, last time we had communion... And you confess the sins of the last week and month. Was it the case that your resolve in the moment of a, of a quiet time, in a sermon, under, a, under a, 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 a convicting conversation we have, you have with someone, was it the case that that drove you in such a powerful way that it kept you from sinning? And the answer is always sometimes, right? What I want to look at with you tonight is five aims for a well-lived life. Five aims for a well-lived life. This comes right out of going back and picking up uh, some of verse 14, which we looked at last time with the jealousy of God. Remember, that serves as a hinge, both concluding the previous section and moving into this coming section. So let's grab the, uh, the essence of that, looking at verses 14 and 15. The first aim for a well-lived life is exclusive loyalty to the Lord. Exclusive loyalty to the Lord. He says in verse 14, You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. Let's talk about that for a second. Don't follow other gods. If you go back to the first two commandments, those are about the exclusive worship of Yahweh, of of God. God recognizes in giving this command in the first two commandments, God recognizes in giving this command here in verse 14 that there is constantly ever about us the temptation to follow things, gods, idols, anything other than God. Now, we talked a little bit about this last, uh, last time. Why? Because God is invisible. And because the payoff for enjoying and obeying God doesn't always show up in the moment. Oh, it does sometimes. I hope that you've sensed that sweet inner peace of obedience in the moment of making a decision for God and away from your sin. That can happen. That's a foretaste of glory divine. But because we don't sense that immediate cheerleading 
pep rally in heaven where the angels and everyone's saying, good job, we tend to say, was it worth it? Sin brings immediate joy. Our joy as Christians is largely eschatological, which means it's largely reserved for us in heaven. Don't follow the other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. Look at that peer pressure of the peoples who surround you. Notice he doesn't say, move to the monastery. You're always going to be surrounded by unbelievers who will bring their gods into your life. Now, let me tell you the sad history of this verse. That was going to be the case with some of the people of Israel who wanted to keep Yahweh, wanted to keep God in focus, but also bring other gods into their lives. Solomon, his heart was turned away from from God by a thousand women in his life and said his heart was turned away because he loved them and he brought their gods into his world. It's a great verse about peer pressure. You are surrounded by people who will worship other gods. Now, here it may mean the gods of Egypt. Here it may mean those gods that were were the Asheroth and on the the high places in the land of Canaan where they were going to go and conquer. But in our situation, it's anything that will bring our affections, bring our attention, sink into our resources other than God himself. Then he gives us the reason. We looked at this last time. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Moses uh, was told in Exodus that God's name is jealous. When is the last time you ever prayed, oh, jealous? The reason God is jealous and it's okay is he has the right to own people. So he can be jealous when when, when we give allegiance to other places. We can't be jealous because we don't have the right to own people. Otherwise, this is pretty straightforward. The anger of the Lord, your God, will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Tells us how serious God is about our allegiance being exclusively pointed toward him. His anger is connected to his jealousy. Back in verse 15. Your God in your midst is a jealous God. His character is jealous. You understand in the moment of sin that we trigger in God's heart jealousy. Why? Because we're saying, I want something to bring me joy, happiness, and peace that only God is intended to do. And here's what the devil has learned to do. Give us joy and peace, satisfaction for a moment in these pleasures that we seek that are not God, in these other gods that we worship in our culture. Is God the exclusive trajectory of your and my life? Well, that's where we started. We, we summarized that last week. Let's go on to a second aim for a well-lived life. This is in verse 16 unquestioned trust in the Lord. We're going to have to have a little history lesson on this one. Unquestioned trust in the Lord. Verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah or Mesa. Go back to Exodus chapter 17 for a moment. We have to read this account. This was a really important uh, factoid. This is an important part of the nation of Israel that would never be forgotten. It's repeated over and over as a reference point in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. 
always looking back to this incident in Exodus chapter 17. You remember it well? Moses is leading the people through uh, the wilderness. I've been in that wilderness, and it's just south um, east of Israel. It is hot, it is arid. There, there are no creeks that flow out there. Well, Moses had just led the people to a place where there was no natural flowing water. Imagine having a few million people who are thirsty, and they come to you and they say, um, we're thirsty, and uh, there's no river, there's no creek, there's no water fountain, there's no drinking fountain, uh, there's no bottled water, there's nothing around. What, what do you do? Pick up that idea in verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, camped at uh, Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now just stop right there. Remember that time when you were super thirsty? I don't mean just like kind of thirsty, like you wanted something to go with your potato chips. I mean when you had been without water, maybe at the end of a football practice. When I used to play football back in junior high before everyone grew and I didn't, um, this was the bad old days, not the good old days. They used to give us salt tablets and then say you can't drink anything. It was tough. You were tough if you wouldn't drink anything. So they would give us no water, which I think is a, a criminal offense today. Uh, and I remember it just being so thirsty. In the middle of practice, the coach would stop. He would give us a piece of ice. That's called torture. Well, I remember at the end of one, I mean, we were always thirsty, but at the end of one practice, I was so thirsty and so parched. My, my uniform was on. Remember, my, I was so small that I could pretty much spin my helmet all the way around my head. Um, I remember getting hit one time, and my, my face mask was this way. We did have face masks back then. Um, and my, my knee pads were on my ankles. It was just hard to run. I remember being so thirsty that my tongue stuck to the roof of my mouth and I couldn't get it off. I remember running, last lap, and the next thing I remember is I was, I was uh, uh, opening my eyes and I had ice all on me and the coach was pouring water down my throat. I had a heat stroke. Just passed out. Absolutely passed out. That thirst, just when you just can't wait. This is a whole culture. Parents, imagine your children coming up to you. Mom, I'm thirsty. I can't have anything to drink. There's nothing to drink. Therefore, you understand verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses. Really, you think? And said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? We'll come back to that. But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Wow, we find out something else now. They're picking up rocks and saying, Moses, give us water, or I've got a 90-mile-an-hour fastball for your head. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. You shall strike the rock, 
and water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah or Mesa and Meribah. You'll see that in the Psalms often, that Meribah, tested me at Meribah. Because the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord amongst us or not? This is a different situation than Moses hitting the stone twice. That was Moses' deal. This is the people who tested God. How did they test God? By the way, those two words uh, mean one who contends with God, fights with God. Why did they test the Lord? Because they were questioning, and at the end of verse 7, is God among us or not? Said another way, will God really take care of us? Does God care about my needs? And so they quarreled, And grumbled, complaining is a massive sin before the Lord. And they came to Moses. You know, I couldn't help when I was studying this, thinking of Jesus in the wilderness. Thirsty, hungry, praying and depending on the Lord. Looking to God. Now, now this is an appropriate place to stop and, and ask a basic question about food and water, hydration and nutrition. What does Jesus teach the disciples to do in the, in the Lord's Prayer? We, we, we skip over it so, so easy. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day what? Bread? Daily bread? When did you last wake up in the morning and beg God for food and water or you would thirst or starve? Really? Really? Oh, we're really quick, and I think rightfully so, to give thanks. Uh, right before, thank you for giving us this. That's great. I've been in places in the world where people wake up every morning and say, God, if you don't provide bread for us today, we will not eat. It needs to be a supernatural gift of your grace, or we will thirst and starve. Do you think that the job that you have that gives you money, the taxes you pay that brings water into your sink and into your faucet, that that's just some kind of magic. It's common grace and general grace that God does that to almost everyone around us. But do you understand that God intends, the Lord's Prayer here looking at the people, intends for us to seek Him and to thank Him and to source Him for our daily sustenance? They tested God. How did they test God? Because they said, is God really here or not? So when God doesn't give you what you think you want and sometimes what you think you need, the great test here is do we begin saying, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if God loves me. This goes back to that great chapter of that book, I mean, title of that book that I love so much. If God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? It's a junior high devotional. Do you question or test God? That's the great sin here. He's calling for Moses. Don't put the Lord your God to test as you did then, testing him. Think about that the next time you thank the Lord for your meal. Just pause and say, God, I didn't even ask you for this. And it's here. You're at the table at home, you're at a restaurant, you're pouring a bowl of cereal at four in the morning. Whenever it is, just, God, 
I didn't, I didn't even ask you for it. Here's a meal. I can turn on the spigot and there's, there's water that comes out of it. Amazing blessing. But when you don't get what you think you want and think you need, do you question God? That's what's going on here. Now, that's still in the basic necessities of food and nutrition. What about uh, if that guy doesn't like me, if that girl doesn't like me, if my kids are doing this, if my job does, what about my boss, what about this? Where is God? This is theological. All of our problems are theological problems. What we believe has to influence and control what we think. A third aim. Moral compliance to the Lord. You, you knew this was coming. Moral compliance to the Lord. Isn't this what he always tells us? Verses 17 to 19. You should diligently keep the commandments. That word diligently, diligently is a pretty powerful Hebrew word. With all your might. Do everything within your control. Everything within your willpower. Everything with, within your resources to keep the commandments of the Lord your God. I love the fact that Moses doesn't just say keep the commandments. He does that in other places for shorthand. Here he wants to make sure that the commandments that we obey are connected to a real living God, not just random obedience. The Mormons can do that. The Jehovah Witnesses can do that. Psychologists can tell their clients to do that. This is different. This is obeying commands attached to a loving, living God. Then he gives some different uh, um, uh, qualifications or descriptions of that. His testimonies, his statutes, those are sometimes referred to, uh, connected to the sacrificial system, sometimes connected to remembrances, which he, again, which he has commanded you. He could have just said the commandments. He goes back to personalize it with God. Now here it is. Here's the morality. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Just stop right there. Remember a few years ago, I guess it's still out, there was a big craze, a WWJD bracelets. You know, what would Jesus do? And I got to confess, when I saw that, I thought, that's trivial, that's tried. I mean, come on, you don't need a bracelet. To... And the more I think about that, it's actually a pretty good reminder. Because Jesus would always do, the point of that is Jesus would always do what is right. Do you remember to do what is right? right. How do you define what is right? Ah, there's the catch. It's qualified right here. In the sight where? Of the Lord. Is the permanent abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, is the ever enriched ministry of illumination that the Holy Spirit gives into our minds based on the word that we have, we've absorbed, does that come to bear? Does that come into play? Is that a game changer? We're making decisions. We're making moral decisions. What's the takeaway? What do you get from that? That it may be well with you and that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers by driving out all your enemies before you as the Lord has spoken. Now, this is obviously a covenantal promise. This is based uh, uh, on God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them this piece of real estate. The children of Israel were to go. But understand that that is an unconditional promise with some conditional applications. You say, how is that the case? Remember what happened to these folks' parents? He promised them the promised land, right? And none of them are going. Even though it is an unconditional promise to the nation, the individual enjoyment of, a, of the unconditional promise is always based on obedience. It's still the same in the gospel. 
Will God bring any believer to heaven? Better say yes, right? However, if disobedience plagues and cripples a believer who just continues to stumble and stammer over continual sin, uh, does it go well with you? It doesn't. God has a wonderful law of cause and effect. I've told you over and over, one of the greatest uh, um, confirmations or assurances of my own salvation is that I just don't, I can't get away with anything. It's sometimes really frustrating. I have sons and a wife and friends who, who are constantly seeing things and saying things to me. Praise God for that because a father's child, he always disciplines, right? He's going to drive out the enemies before them. That's going to have something to do with their obedience here in just a few verses. This is about obeying by doing hard things. It was going to be difficult to go into the land of Canaan and wipe out people, reestablish, separate from your, your cousins and go north when they would go south. All the points of the obedience in this were going to be difficult. And isn't that the case with most of our obedience? Uh, Emily and I were talking before uh, the service uh, as she was about to be baptized. Um, and I said, this, this may be the easiest point of your entire Christian life in obedience. You, you walk down there, you get dunked, and you come up and it's over. <laughs> Don't you wish you could deal with your lust that way? Or your envying that way? Or your relationships that are struggling that way, that you can just do something and it's done. Most obedience involves very difficult trials. Some obediences are easier than others. This was going to be one that was going to be an ever-changing uh, uh, challenge for them. Now, this is where it gets a little interesting and strange. It was going to be a challenge for them because they didn't obey fully in the beginning. If you follow this out in the book of Joshua, and especially in the book of Judges, what happened was because they didn't obey God fully in those early months and they didn't wipe out and do exactly what God said to the idolatry and to the Canaanites and they let some of them live, what was there always present in Israel? Idolatry, temptation. Obedience is hard. And it's supposed to be hard. So why is this supposed to be hard? Because then it reveals our allegiances. If you'll say no to the flesh, lust the flesh, lust the eyes, pride of life, and yes to obedience and yes to God, you have put a stake in the ground in your own life, a stake in the ground before heaven and the angels. If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my holy angels, Jesus said. How are we ashamed of them? Well, you could deny them in a moment of a conversation, but primarily it's by obeying our own flesh rather than the Lord and his precepts and commands. A fourth aim for a well-lived life. We've alluded to this already when we were studying earlier in the chapter, verse 7. Prepared discipleship towards the Lord. Prepared discipleship towards the Lord. Now, that's a phrase that it, on purpose the way it is. The discipleship is prepared, it's, it's, it's equipped, and it's towards God. This is specifically talking about discipling our children. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? That's another way of saying, why do you obey God? Dads, moms, do, do we live lives so attached 
in our decisions to biblical data, to God himself, to our community of believers and brothers and sisters at church, do we make decisions so clearly attached to our spiritual priorities that our kids scratch their heads and say, why why are you doing that? In other words, our obedience is very loud. Religion is not a private matter. How many times have you witnessed to somebody, I'm listen, religion is private. No, it's not. It's very public. And nowhere is it more public than in the home. Our lives, mom, dad, should provoke gospel questions. Why do we do that? Why do we not do that? And I mean this in all seriousness. The Super Bowl's on right now. Why are we here, Mom? Why are we, why are we going to church? Why do we do what the world doesn't do? Why, do, we do? why are we so different? Why are we strange? Why do we seem like aliens, right? And Peter says, because you are an alien, not green with an antenna. When your son asks you in time to come what these mean, why are they there? The greatest privilege of any parent is when a son or daughter engages them about Lifestyle, moral choices, convictions, political leanings, and the answer is God. Let me tell you why. This, though, is only provoked when your parents are living differently than other people. So, students, when when you begin saying, why are we so different than everybody? Because God's people are. It's supposed to be that way. We're going upstream. This is, this, we don't walk as the world walks. Look at what he says. This is pretty interesting with a protocol for discipleship in verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, now we're going to drum roll, what do you say? What's the parent to answer? We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us up from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs. That distressing signs is really really a graphic Hebrew terms that means almost punishing signs. They saw God do really, really graphic things to the Egyptians. Wonders before our eyes. They walked across the Red Sea, the, the parents did. Pharaoh and all, all his household. He brought us up from there in order to bring us in, to give us the land which he had shown, sworn to our fathers. Now, here's the deal. How many of these people standing on plains of Moab looking across the Jordan, how many of these people were old enough to remember any of this? Zero. What does that tell you? They had learned what God was like, what God did from their parents. You see the success of discipleship? Their parents had to die. They couldn't even go. Their parents were the ones who walked through. Red Sea. They were there. They were really, really babies on on the backs. The point is, biblical data, historic data, let's go to the New Testament, gospel truth is to be passed on even if it wasn't experienced firsthand. Even if they didn't see God do all these things in Egypt, they knew about him. Even if you and I didn't see Jesus walk on the earth or crucified on the hill, we, we know about it, right? Implied in this is the constant, perpetual discipleship from parent to son, from parent to son, from parent to son. And that also includes daughters as well. 
Look where he goes, though. The Lord, verse 22, showed us great and distressing signs. It's on God himself, not just on the stuff that God did. It's on the blesser, not just the blessing. And then he gives the context for the current blessing in verse 23. In order to give us the land which he has sworn to our fathers. We are inheritors of a promise that we didn't even hear God say to us. And our parents, this goes back 400 years before uh, that's connected to even the, the promise to Abraham and to Joseph and Isaac and Jacob. This is just so convicting to me. This, I think my, my, my kids sometimes say to me, well, why is dad, dad acting like that? And it's not always a good thing. And in fact, you live long enough with, with some, some Christians in your home and they'll say, why is dad acting like that when he shouldn't be? That's a good thing. Parents, do your life provoke that kind of gospel response? Now, students, are you willing, will you go to your parents to ask questions about biblical truth? And if the answer is, I don't know, then study it together. We don't have to be PhD theologians, just teachable and willing. There should be theological, moral questions going back and forth and discussions happening at the breakfast and lunch and dinner table all throughout our days with our kids at home. And and it doesn't go away even when they, they leave us, right? Dad, what do you think about this decision? Mom, what would you do? We're paving parents. This is a short little parenting series that Moses gives us in one verse. We are paving the way in every discussion for future discussions for gospel impact. A fifth aim for a well-pleased life, a well-lived life, is in verses 24 and 25. Very simple. Reasoned obedience to the Lord. Reasoned obedience to the Lord. You know what I love about what God does when he tells us something to do? He tells us why. He doesn't just say, go do that. Now, it would be enough for him to tell us that, and he could say, I told you so, and that's enough. I mean, my dad, he coined the phrase, maybe, maybe you've adopted it, maybe your parents adopted it, but my dad has a patent and a copyright on this phrase. Son, do this. Why? Because I told you so. If you've used that, you owe me royalties. You know, because I told you so. Now, that would be enough with dad. I mean, with God, not with dad. Um, that would be enough with God. But God doesn't always do that. He tells us why it's good to obey. He puts the carrot out in front of us. So, verse 24, here's the reason to obedience. The Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God. Do you underline things in your Bible? Why? Why obey and fear God? For our, what's the word? Good. For our good. The Hebrew says, goodliness that extends. Good always. And for our survival, as today, as is today. This is just precious truth from God. It is good for us to do what's right. It is good for us to obey God, even when we don't sense, can I say it, or feel the goodness in the moment of it. It never feels good to deny a fleshly lust or pleasure or, or something that we say or something we think that will bring us some kind of immediate satisfaction. That doesn't bring a feeling of goodness in the moment, but it is for our good that we obey him. 
Find out right there because it leads to the fear of the Lord, to fear God. Uh, Proverbs 9, 10, we fear because we have a knowledge of the Holy One. An understanding of who God is brings about a proper fear and reverence to Him. And then we've been running and chasing all of this data to get to verse 25, which is perfectly uh, uh, dovetails into our study in Romans, what we're saying tonight, Aaron. Disobedience, this trusting and serving and fearing God, will be righteousness for us. Huh? If we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Now, if you've been listening carefully in Romans, you might say, hang on. They obeyed and got righteousness. We get righteousness so that we obey. This, is, this righteousness they get from obedience goes all the way back to the first part of the chapter. Hear, O Israel, verse 4, the Lord our God is... Uh, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words of which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall bind them, follow them. It's talking about believing who God is and what God's done. That creates a desire to obey, which gives us righteousness, which becomes observable. Righteousness is in our life. The righteousness we get from obedience doesn't make God uh, uh, love us. He loves us, which is why we do this righteousness, which pleases him, and it's a perfect circle. But this does raise a very serious question. I mean, an epically, massively serious question. That's the question of obedience. The, um, um, the debate has been raging since, was it 1987, when... Uh, John MacArthur wrote the Gospel According to Jesus, 1987-1988, where uh, he just put the stake in the ground and said, if you love the Lord, you'll obey him. And if you don't obey him, it's proof that you don't love him. Saved people obey God. Not perfectly, but they they lean into their obedience. Unsaved people don't obey God. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2. Because this issue of obedience that Moses raises here is really answered in... John's gospel. John, you know, is the Lord's best friend on the earth. He was the one who uh, leaned on the Lord in the Last Supper. He was a precious, uh, entrusted friend. And when, when John speaks, I always listen with a specially tuned ear. He knew the Lord's heart, not just the commands. He knew the Lord's heart like, like no one else did. The intimacy is unmistakable. So he says in 1 John chapter 2, and I want you to see this. This is a significant text. This is a circle, underline, star, outline, whatever you do in your Bible. By this, chapter 2, verse 3, First John, by this we know that we have come to know him. So here it is. We're going we're gonna to find out and define what a person who knows him looks like, acts like. There's a, there's a proof here. How? If, very important word, if we do what? Keep his commandments. Now think about what he's saying. He's not saying, follow some commands and then God will know you. He said, no, no, it's, it's fruit. We will know that we've come to know him if we keep, our, keep his commandments. You say, perfectly? Well, that's an interesting question. Verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth's not in us. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about progress. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So let's stop right here and say, for all time, John, after he says you have to obey to prove you're a Christian, is not saying perfectly. He just qualified that a few verses before, two verses before. But he is saying this, we'll know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments, we treasure them. And you would think that would be enough, but he goes on. He anticipates what someone would say. The one who says, hey, I've come to know him. I walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, threw my pine cone in the fire, gave God my time by putting my watch in the fire at camp. I did all that stuff. I've come to know him. But does not keep his commandments. How clear is this? He is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now he goes back to the positive. But... Whoever keeps, abides in, lives in his word, in him, in him, the one who obeys, the love of God has truly been, perfected is not the best word here, it's probably better translated matured. By this, we know that we are in him. And then he gives a little footnote. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus walked. Is that clear? Is that clear? That's exactly what Moses is saying here. You obey the statutes. You keep the commandments. You follow the Lord because you love him, because you know him, because you understand who he is in the beginning parts of Deuteronomy chapter 6. You love him, and obedience comes after that. Jesus would say in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, he would say this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. See the parallel with Deuteronomy? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you do, you will obey him. Not perfectly. I mean, the longer you grow as a Christian, don't you, don't you hate your sin more? I had a guy, I want to confess this to you. There's a guy who I know who said, the longer I'm a Christian, the less I sin. And that troubled me for a while because I thought, boy, I wish that was me. Can I just confess to you, the longer I'm a, I'm a Christian, the more sin in my life I see. It's like he just keeps cranking the spotlight hotter and hotter on little bitty attitudes I didn't recognize before, little bitty disobediences, little bitty unfaithfulness, a neighbor I haven't talked to, a, 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 an opportunity I did pass up that never used to bother me, bother me now. You will never obey completely. The question is, are you obeying at all? Does obedience matter? Does your life aim at obedience? And he says here, it's reasoned obedience. It's righteousness for us if we're careful to observe all those commandments. This doesn't mean imputed righteousness like Romans 3 and 4 and 5. This is the righteousness that the world will look at and say, wow, that person is different. That our kids will look at us and say, wow, they, that living, that life standard, those values are way different than my flesh is inclined to think and do. How and why? Back to Deuteronomy. Closing out this chapter is critical to see the bookends. Notice for a, uh, a moment, um, if you read all the comparatives in chapter 6, 
There's a lot of them. A lot of do this, don't do that. A lot. A lot of imperatives. And yet, look at the first verse. Now, this is the commandment. Singular or plural? Singular. Look at the last verse in chapter 6. To observe all this commandment. See the singular? What is he talking about? There were a lot of commandments, a lot of statutes, a lot of... In this very context, he gives a ton of stuff. What is he talking about? The central commandment that governs all of our obedience, every nuance of our obedience, is in verse 5. The commandment, the great commandment, says Jesus, the singular commandment that governs every part of our obedience is... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Then the plural in verse 6, the words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. So let's back up from all this, okay? Obedience, central in this text. Central in the whole chapter. Central in this book. Central in the whole Bible. But obedience, loving the commandments, means nothing without loving the commander. I mean, here's, here's what it's tempting for us to do. Um, I mean, parents, let's just say you go home to that. And... Um, you walk into the living room and your son's daughters had some people over and they left. Whatever they leave in there, you know what I'm talking about. Food, beverages, clothes, jackets, shoes, socks, unidentifiable things, it's all there, okay? And you said, listen, Chuck and Chelsea, I want you to clean up the living room. And they take what you said, and they, they look at each other, Chuck and Chelsea do, and they say, wow, Dad wants us to clean up the living room. And they write it down. And they go upstairs, and they, they memorize it. Clean up the living room. It's amazing. Isn't that great? What a kind dad to want us to have a clean living room. To enjoy, to have hospitality, to entertain. Oh, that's what a great commandment. I love that word. It's amazing. They go to school. Look at this. Clean the living room. Can you believe that? It's amazing. What? If they don't clean the living room, who cares? Right? Obedience happens because we love the one who obeys. Do you understand that every command God gives us is for our good? Well, when you sin, you disbelieve that. I disbelieve that. We distrust him. So, anxieties, trials, problems, relationships, lusts, Envies, you name it. When you choose to make decisions to sin in those categories, you are stiff-arming this passage which says, if I obey and do what's right, according to the Lord, it won't go well with me and it won't be for my good. 
But if you do that, it will be well for you and it will be for your good. Now, let me, add, let me answer the quick footnote. Well, how did that work out for Thomas Cramer and Bishop Ridley who were burnt at the stake for doing what was right? Do you not think when their heart took its last energetic pump and stopped and they opened their eyes and their faith became sight that they, they said, uh, obedience is not good at all. It comes back to believing God, doing right, and being righteous are because we love the God who tells us to do these things. Please, I'm begging you, please train your heart. Please recognize your tendency, my tendency, to do what's right instead of to do what's right because it pleases the one who told us it's right. And he cares and it's good. The New Testament translation of this is really simple. Jesus told us, Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? He says, well, good question, but I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to tell you number one and number two, not just number one. Number one, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. Implication, every verse comes into, everything in the Bible comes into one of those two categories. And if you do that, things will go well and you'll be happy. It's for our good. The great question in this text is, do you believe that? Are you willing to follow God's structure for a well-lived life or your own? How's that worked out for you? Not so well for any of us. Let's pray. Father, I'm just reading this and so convicted that I sense areas of sin today. I know that you know what I'm thinking about, what I thought, what I said, what I did. And in that moment, it was such a distrust of you, such a, such a stiff arm in this text, which says that it's for our good, for my good to obey. Help us to stop and to think. Help us to stop and to think, Father about you in the midst of our decisions, you in the midst of our scripture reading and memory and study, that if it doesn't motivate us to love you deeper, trust you better, that ultimately it's just legalism and will bring no lasting satisfaction. It's amazing to me, God, it's so amazing that from the beginning of your word to the end, the message is consistent. Old Testament, New Testament, under the law, under gospel, who you are and what you require, how you regulate our lives for our good by your sweet commands. Teach us what Jesus taught us. Help us to imbibe it, to live it, that if we love you, we will keep your commandments and to believe that it's for our good. We pray this for Jesus because of his precious sacrifice for us. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.